Father, we thank you for your word and for how we can have the privilege each week of opening it up together to consider with one another what you are saying through your spirit as you directed the Apostle Paul to write in this letter to the Galatians. Lord, even though this letter was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it's still just as applicable to us today as it was then because uh, people haven't changed. We still sin. We still fall short of your glory. We still need a Savior, and Jesus is still that mighty Savior rescuing all who call upon him in faith. So we thank you for that, and we pray you'd help us as, as we read your word, help us to understand it, to believe it, and to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, turn again to Galatians 4. We're looking at verses 12 through 20 this morning. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Verse 12, Paul says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Proverbs 15.5 says, As an ignorant fool spurns his father's discipline, but he who keeps reproof is prudent. Later on in that chapter, verse 32, it says that he who neglects discipline despises his soul, but he who listens to reproof acquires a heart of wisdom. And then David, in Psalm 141 and verse 5, he says, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Those are difficult verses to live out because in our pride we don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to have someone point out our sin to us. When I was in my mid-twenties, uh, I was corrected by a brother in Christ and I've been corrected many times since then, but that was the first time I really remember thinking hard about how God wanted me to respond to the correction that was brought to me. I remember I was with a group of friends, and I spoke disrespectfully to one of my friends. And I didn't think anything about it. I didn't have any conviction in my soul about what I had done. I forgot all about it. But in the next days following, one of my friends who was there and who had seen me speak disrespectfully, he wrote an email to me. And in that email, he gently rebuked me and made me aware of my sin. And as I read that email, I was offended because my, my sinful pride 
had been hurt. I couldn't believe that I would say something that was, that was sinful. But I knew that what he said was right and that I had sinned. And so in that moment, I could have done one of two things. I could either reject my brother's reproof or I could humble myself and acknowledge my sin, receive his rebuke, and thank him for it. And by the grace of God, I did the latter. I acknowledged my sin to him. I thanked him for making me aware of it. And then I sought reconciliation with the one that I had sinned against. To be a Christian is to be deeply involved in that kind of back and forth. It's to be deeply involved in the business of giving correction and of receiving correction. And it's of the utmost importance that we be committed to that back and forth in our lives as believers. We be committed to giving correction and we be committed to receiving correction. And the reason is that without that, without being committed to giving correction and receiving it, we're not going to grow in Christ. We're going to stay the same. We're not going to persevere in our faith in Jesus because we've become so hard-headed that we're not going to let anybody tell us what to do. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to show us how to offer correction to someone when they've strayed from the gospel of Christ. And he's going to show us what kind of heart we should have in bringing that correction. You don't just correct somebody any way you want. There's a certain way to do it. And as we see how Paul offers these Galatians correction, we're going to be reminded of our need to receive correction. So first, we're going to see in verse 12, the, the, the beginning part of the verse, we're going to see that we are to correct by example. We're to correct others by example. So look at chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. This is actually the first command in the, the book of Galatians that Paul is giving to these believers that he's writing to. And the command is this, become as I am. He's exhorting these believers to imitate him. And the reason he gives for why they should imitate him is because he says, for I became as you. Now, what is he talking about here? What does he mean that he became like them? Well, I think the context of the letter pushes us toward an answer. What has Paul been talking about ever since chapter 2 and verse 16? He's been talking about justification by faith, right? That we're justified, we're declared righteous by God when we believe in Jesus. We're not justified by obeying the law. That's what he's been talking about. And before that, he gave these believers his autobiography. You remember he talked about who he was as an unbeliever, talked about coming to faith in Christ, talked about his ministry. He walked them through that whole thing. But he started with who he was before he knew Jesus. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul tells the Galatians who he was before he believed in Jesus. He says, verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's who Paul was. He tells these Galatians just how zealous he was for that law-centered life 
as a Jew. And he was so zealous for it that he tried to exterminate the church. But then what happened to him? What happened? Verse 15, he says, But when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So what happened to Paul? God called him to salvation by his grace, by his unmerited favor. And Paul came to believe in Jesus, and he came to preach Jesus, and he came to preach that Jesus to Gentiles. Now, when Paul went around preaching to Gentiles or non-Jews, how did he interact with them? Did he continue observing the ceremonial law of Moses? Did he hold himself aloof from those Gentiles? Did he just refuse to eat with them? No. Turn over uh, to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul tells us what he did when he brought the gospel to Gentiles. He told us how he acted. 1 Corinthians 9, and we're looking at verses 19 through 23. And I want you to, as you turn there, I want you to keep in mind what Paul said in chapter 4. He says, become as I am, for I became as you. So, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I what? What does he say? I became as a Jew. Why? So that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. I always give the example of eating pork. You know, the law of Moses forbade eating certain food, of which pig was one of those things. When Paul was bringing the gospel to a Jew, if they were sitting down to a nice meal, he wouldn't bring his lunchbox filled with pork and sit down with them and share the gospel. No, he, he would observe what the law of Moses said for the sake of having a conversation, right? How about with Gentiles? Verse 21. Remember, he's saying, I became as a Jew. Who does he become like in verse 21? He says, to those who are without law, I became as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So when Paul ministered to Gentiles, those who were without the law of Moses, he became like them. He became like one without the law. He would sit down and eat pork with them over a meal to share the gospel with them. He was willing to set aside the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law for the sake of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And the reason why he was able to do that was because he was no longer under the law of Moses. So back in Galatians 4 and verse 12, when he says that he became like them as Gentiles, he seems to be saying that he had come to them as one without the law of Moses. Paul had gone, remember, from being a zealot for Judaism 
to coming out from under Judaism for the sake of pursuing justification by faith in Christ. And so completely had he been set free from the condemnation of the law of Moses that he was able to set aside the ceremonial customs of Mosaic law in order to gain access to the lives of Gentiles, in order to share the gospel with them. Paul became like them, like one without the law. But now, as Paul writes this letter, to his shock and horror, it's almost like he's passing the Galatians on the highway. You know, he became like them, but now as he's writing the letter, they're shooting by him, becoming like he used to be, right? They're putting themselves under the law of Moses. And Paul is just shocked. You know, they're going the wrong way. What are they doing? Remember chapter 4, verse 10? They are doing what? They're observing days and months and seasons and years. They are putting themselves under the law of Moses. They're thinking that they need to do works to earn the favor of God. They're going the wrong way. And so Paul pleads with them. He begs them to become like he is now, not like he used to be. He wants them to imitate his faith in Jesus. Now, I want to ask us, are we being the kind of example to others that Paul was being to the Galatians? Have, have you and I fully turned away from all our efforts to earn God's favor? Have we fully embraced Jesus by faith as our only hope before God, as our only Savior, our only Lord? Do we trust that Jesus is all our righteousness before God? And I don't have to add any speck of righteousness to to him in order to earn my place before God? Are we living our lives in the freedom and joy and peace of resting in Christ's accomplishments, trying to uh, abandon all our other attempts to earn his favor? Can others see that you're trusting in Christ? Can others look at your life and see that you're not trying to work your way to God? Yeah, you do good works, but you don't do it to earn his favor. You do it because Jesus has saved you and you're resting in his righteousness. You're clothed, as it were, in his robe of righteousness, counting on Jesus to be the one who gives you access to heaven. Can others see that in you? We need those examples. We need others who are walking alongside us, walking by faith. We need to see that. Turn, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 13. The preacher to the Hebrews, he speaks of this need that we have to have those examples. Hebrews 13. And verse 7. He says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We need those examples. And we need to be those examples for others so that when they stray off into legalism, they have a fixed point of reference as we are following Jesus 
helps them see where that right, straight, and narrow road is for them to get back on track. So we're to correct by example. Secondly, we are to correct by loving relationship, having loving relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see this in the next part of verse 12, all the, re- all the way through verse 16. So we're back in Galatians 4, and let me finish reading verse 12. Paul says, you have done me no wrong. Literally, you did me no wrong. It's past tense. He's looking back. He's considering his past relationship with the Galatians. And he says, you did me no wrong back then. You did me no wrong. Now, Paul here, as he begins this next section, Paul is going to appeal to the Galatians' affections. Up until this point, he's been appealing to their minds. He's been appealing to their logic, to their reasons. Now he's beginning to appeal to their hearts. He wants them to remember the days when he first brought the gospel to them. He wants them to remember their mutual love. And he says, you did me no wrong. You did me no wrong. Paul, when he first came preaching the gospel in the province of Galatia, If you read back in Acts 13 and 14, did he have an easy time of it? When he first arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and then when he got driven to uh, Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, was he having an easy time? No, right? The Jews, many of them rejected the gospel he shared. They were stirring up the Gentiles in those cities, and Paul had to move from one city to the next being chased around by those who rejected the gospel. At one point, he even got stoned. And he was stoned to the point that those who were stoning him thought they finished the job and they left him for dead. But he wasn't dead, thankfully. So no, he he had a very hard time. Many did him wrong in Galatia. But the ones that he's writing to, they were not those who did him wrong. They received his gospel. They rejoiced in it. They were thrilled that he had come bringing them the gospel. And Paul elaborates in verses 13 and 14 on how they responded to him. So when Paul came on that first missionary journey to Galatia, how did they respond? Look at verse uh, 13. He says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial or a temptation to you in my bodily condition... You did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So first, in verse 13, he reminds them of the circumstances under which he came to them. And he says it was because of a bodily illness that he came to them. What does that suggest? As as Paul and Barnabas and others were sailing from Cyprus north, and they arrived at uh, Perga, did they intend to stop in Galatia? It it sounds like, no, they intended to to go on or at least not spend as much time there. But apparently, Paul got sick, and we don't read about that in Acts. But Paul lets us know that that's what happened, and that's why they stayed in Galatia. He was restricted from traveling because of some kind of affliction that he was going through. We see here that God even uses physical illness to advance his kingdom. It it wasn't Paul's plan, but it was God's plan. 
And just to give us a little mini-sermon here, as Christians, we can often get frustrated when things don't go the way we planned for them to go. But we would do well to remember that though our plans are frustrated, God's plans are not. That things are going just as he has planned them to go. There are no roadblocks when it comes to God carrying out his plan. As I was studying this this little bit of this passage, I remembered back uh, to the summer I was doing seasonal work in St. Lawrence County. I was working for the USDA. We were monitoring for emerald ash borer. It's an invasive beetle. And I was staying up in Cranberry Lake. That was my little uh, spot where I would stay and I would go out and hang up those purple traps that, that you've probably seen hanging up. But if I remember right, we had a training that was 50 miles from there at a DEC headquarters in Raybrook. And I went through the training after driving out there. And after the training, I went out to my work Jeep and I was feeling for my keys and I couldn't find them. So I looked in the window of the Jeep and what do you think I saw? I saw my keys in the ignition of the Jeep. And do you think I was careful to lock the Jeep? Yes, I was. And this was the first time it had happened to me. Since then, I've, I've gotten good at breaking into my own car, because I often do this, lock my keys in the car. But that was the first time that it happened to me. And so I panicked. And there was an outhouse on the edge of the, the parking lot, and I just I went in there, sat on the pot, and I just started praying, because I did not know what to do. I was stranded in Raybrook, 50 miles from where I was supposed to be. So I went back into the headquarters and asked for a phone book and found a taxi. There's not a plethora of taxis out in the Adirondacks, but I found one and I called him and he was going to charge me $2 a mile. Remember, I'm 50 miles from Cranberry Lake. 50 miles to get there, get my key, my spare, 50 miles to come back. So I was looking at a a $200 mistake. That was all I could think to do. So the driver came and he got me and we drove for 100 miles together and I was blessed to be able to share the gospel with that taxi driver. And if I hadn't locked my keys in the Jeep, I never would have met that man, never would have shared the gospel with him. So even though I encountered a roadblock, it was just God's plan carrying out just the way he wanted it to go. So there's no roadblocks in the life of a Christian. There's only opportunities to trust God and serve Christ. So that's what happened to Paul. He had a roadblock from man's perspective, but God wanted him in Galatia, preaching. In verse 14, Paul says that his bodily condition was a trial or a temptation to those Galatians when he came. They would have been tempted to just reject him simply because of what he was going through. They could have looked at his affliction and scoffed at him. You're telling me that this guy speaks for God? His God can't even keep him healthy. Why should I believe what he's saying about this Jesus that he goes on and on about? But they did not do that. They did not despise him. They did not spurn him. Instead, how did they receive him? According to verse 14, you received me as what? As an angel of God. They welcomed him as if he were Jesus Christ himself. In other words, Paul was Christ's ambassador and they received him as such. They believed the gospel that he preached 
to them on on the behalf of Jesus. Verse 15, Paul asks, in light of how they received him that first time, he says, where then, verse 15, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. When Paul came, the Galatians considered themselves very blessed that he had come to them. And no doubt they blessed Paul for coming to him, to them. And Paul is wondering what happened to that sense of blessing. Because they no longer feel the way they felt about him at the first. They're no longer rejoicing over the gospel he brought to them. They're thinking about abandoning the gospel he brought them. They're no longer resting in the fact that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. They're no longer saying about Paul the words of Isaiah, how lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. That's how they thought about Paul at first, but not anymore. And it's so contrary to how the Galatians first received Paul and the Christ he proclaimed. He says, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. How many things would you give your eyes to have? Probably nothing, right? You you treasure your eyes. Your eyes are precious to you. There's nothing you would trade your eyes for. But Paul says you would have given your eyes to me. So precious was Paul to these Galatians So precious was the gospel of Christ that he'd proclaimed to them that they would have gouged their eyes out of their heads and and given it to them, to Paul, if it would have helped him. Is, Is the gospel that precious to you? Do you love those who speak gospel truth to you that much that you would give them your eyes and count it as nothing compared to the gift of the gospel they gave to you if that would help them? That's, that's quite a question to think about, is it? isn't it? Verse 16, Paul says, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is bewildered. The gospel of Jesus was so precious to these Galatians that Paul, in bringing the gospel to them, had become their very dearest friend, so dear to them that they would have gladly given up their own eyes for him. But here he is in this letter, and he's sharing that same gospel that he brought to them at the first. And now, instead of counting him as as their dearest friend, they are looking at him like he's their enemy. What in the world? What happened? How can you go from, let me give you my eyes, to, I don't want to hear from you? How can you go from one to the other? That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's the trickery of sin of false teaching. It can so bewitch us that we go from seeing someone as our dearest friend to seeing him as our enemy. Sin and false teaching can so blind us that the very gospel we once loved someone for becomes the very thing we hate them for. Paul is saying, remember how much you loved me on account of the Christ I proclaim to you. Why do you now hate me on account of that same Christ whom I proclaim to you now? Jesus has not changed. The gospel has not changed. I, Paul, have not changed. You have changed. 
You see how Paul reminds them of the relationship that he had with them. And when you and I bring correction to someone, it's, it's, it's important that before we've brought correction that we have strived to have that kind of relationship with someone. If I just come cold turkey and say, boom, slap you on the head, this is what you did wrong, are they likely to receive my correction? Probably not if I've ignored them, if I've been harsh with them before, if they never hear a word of encouragement from me, they're not going to receive my correction. But if they see that I've loved them, that I've served them, that I've encouraged them, that I've tried to get to know them, that I've labored to bring the gospel to them, and then I come and bring correction, they're more likely to receive what I'm saying, even though it's hard. So we need to correct someone from the place of having that loving relationship. That's not to say that we can never rebuke when there isn't that relationship. But as we have opportunity, we should strive to foster those relationships so that any correction that we have to bring later would bear good fruit. Thirdly, when we correct someone, we should correct them for their good. I shouldn't be looking for my own, uh, after my own benefit. I should be looking to benefit them. And we see that in verses 17 through 18. In verses 17 to 18, Paul proceeds to to kind of rip the mask off of the false teachers who have poisoned the Galatians against Paul. And who are these people? They're the Judaizers. Just to remind us who the Judaizers are, these are men who profess faith in Jesus, but they're false believers. They're not true believers. And they're not true believers because they believe that you're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believe that you have to add works in order to get right with God. So they're not true believers. And what are these Judaizers seeking to do? They're seeking to convert the Christian Galatians to Judaism. That's why we call them Judaizers, right? What do I mean when I say I'm Americanizing someone? I'm making them an American, right? Showing them how to live as an American. Well, a Judaizer is making a Jew out of someone. And that's what these false teachers were doing. They were trying to make Jews out of the Galatians. All right, let's see. I've lost my place. Let's read verses 17 to 18. Paul says, he's talking about these Judaizers. He says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. The Judaizers are like your daughter's boyfriend who is buttering up your daughter with elaborate gifts, taking her out on expensive dates, and your daughter has just fallen head over heels for this guy, but you can see right through him. You know exactly what he's doing. He's not looking out for her best interests. He's not serving her. He's, he's trying to buy her. He's manipulating her so that she'll do what he wants her to do, so that she'll give him what he wants. That's like these Judaizers. They say they're serving the Galatians, but they're really only serving themselves, manipulating the Galatians. They really don't care at all about the Galatians' eternal well-being. I'm sure that's what they were saying. You know, Paul got this gospel wrong. 
We, we're so concerned about you. You need to, to hear the truth so that you can be made right with God. I'm sure they sounded like they really cared about the Galatians. But Paul's letting them know they don't care about you like that. They're trying to drive a wedge between the Galatians and Paul. They're trying to get the Galatians to see themselves as still outside the church, not accepted by God yet. And why are the Judaizers trying to get the Galatians to, to look at themselves that way? Well, they, they want the Galatians to, to view them as their gurus, right? Are you telling me Paul didn't get it right? You have the answers. Teach me. Let me sit at your feet. Let, let me learn from you. That's what the Judaizers want. They want the Galatians in their hands, at their feet, listening to them rather than to Paul. That's what a false teacher does. He poisons you against those who are sincerely trying to help you so that you'll only listen to him. Now, verse 18 again. Paul says, It's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you. Paul's not like a jealous boyfriend who won't let his girl hang out with other guys unless he's there. That's not Paul. Paul wouldn't have a problem he wouldn't be writing this letter if he knew that these people who had come after him were actually interested in benefiting the Galatians. For example, uh, after Paul planted the church in Corinth and he left, who came after him? Apollos did, right? Paul didn't write a letter to the Corinthians saying, watch out for Apollos, don't listen to Apollos. No, he was, he was fine with Apollos coming. Why? Because he knew Apollos was looking out for their best interest. Paul wasn't trying to get followers for himself. He was only interested in getting followers for Jesus. And if someone came behind him and, and taught them when he wasn't there, as long as they were helping those believers follow Jesus, Paul was good with that. But if they came and tried to lure his spiritual children away from Jesus, Paul was not okay with that. Go over to 2 Corinthians 11. I want you to see that heart of Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, he's having to warn these Corinthians about more false teachers who have come, who do not have their best interests at heart, but are only looking out for themselves. Second Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? Is he jealous for himself? Is he saying, I don't want you listening to those guys. You need to only listen to me. That's not why he's jealous. Why is he jealous? He says, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He's not trying to keep them for himself. He's trying to keep them for Jesus. That's what he's concerned about. Verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's not concerned that, that they don't like him so much. They're concerned that they're not as devoted to Jesus as they used to be because of these false teachers. Verse 4, he says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, 
or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He's speaking sarcastically there at the end. Paul was only interested in making and keeping followers of Jesus. But these Judaizers, all they were interested in was making followers of themselves. Now this brings us to how we should think about our behavior as we seek to correct someone. When you're seeking to instruct or correct someone, ask yourself why you're doing it. Are you doing it in order to lift up yourself to make a follower of yourself, or is it truly to help someone be a more faithful follower of Christ? Put yourself on the other side of it. If someone is bringing correction to you or instructing you, ask yourself, are they trying to help you follow Jesus more faithfully, or are they just trying to make a convert out of you to to make you hitch up to their wagon? If someone is trying to help you follow Jesus more faithfully, You can be thankful that they are pursuing you, that they love you enough to want you to follow Jesus more faithfully. You shouldn't be offended when they offer correction to you. They're trying to help you follow Christ. You should thank God for their ministry to you. You should count them as more precious to you than your own eyes because they're helping you follow the one who is more precious than anything this world can give you. That is the Lord Jesus. The Galatians, they should have been thankful for Paul's rebuke of them. They should have been thankful for his pursuit of them because he was seeking out for the interests of Christ. He was seeking for their good rather than his own. They should have been disturbed by the Judaizers' pursuit of them because the Judaizers just wanted to use them. Fourthly and lastly, when we correct someone, we should do it by sacrificial labor. We see that in verses 19 to 20. The more you love someone, the more burdened you are when they go astray from Christ. And the harder you're going to labor for them in prayer and in counsel to get them back to following faithfully after Jesus. What do you think about Paul? Did he love these Galatians? Yes, he did. You don't have to wonder how much he loved them because of all that he suffered for the sake of serving them. Let's look at verses 19 to 20. Paul says, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I've seen my wife in labor three times, and it's hard, it's distressing, it's unrelenting, and it's painful work. For her, that is, not so much for me. Paul describes himself in those terms. He sees himself as a woman laboring to give birth. And he says that he is in this labor again for the Galatians. Why does he say again? Well, what was he doing when he came to them the first time? He was laboring to see them born again. He was willingly getting stoned by people for the sake of bringing the gospel to the Galatians. He was laboring to see them come to faith in Jesus. And now that these Galatians are on the precipice of abandoning that gospel, Paul feels like he's in labor all over again, straining to clearly articulate the gospel to them, striving to see them 
come to faith in Jesus fully and to stay with him rather than being tempted to leave him. In verse 19, after saying that he's in labor with them, he he changes the metaphor slightly mid-sentence. He says in verse 19, he's in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now it's like the Galatians are the pregnant ones, and Paul is waiting for Christ to be fully formed in them through faith. Look back at chapter 2 of Galatians and verse 20. Look at what Paul said there, how he described himself as a believer. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In me. And that's true of every believer, including these Galatians. When we come to believe in Jesus, we become united to him, and he dwells within us. And he transforms us so that we begin to look more and more like him in our character. But the Galatians, though they believed in Jesus, their faith had reverted to such an undeveloped state that it was like Jesus was in them only in an embryonic form. You know, they were almost unrecognizable as Christians because Christians are gospel people. And what are the Galatians doing with the gospel? They're about to chuck it out the window. So they're almost unrecognizable now as Christians. Paul's heart for all those he ministered the gospel to was that Jesus be fully formed within them, that they would trust him fully and be conformed to his image. In verse 20 here, we see that Paul so wishes he could be there with the Galatians. He he wishes he didn't just have to write a letter and hope for the best. He wishes that he could be right there with them, observing how they're reacting to what he's telling them. Paul was always so concerned about how those he led to Christ would respond when he offered correction. Just to give you some references where we see that, I don't have time to go to all of them, but if you have a pen, write down 2 Corinthians 2, Verses 12 and 13, where Paul speaks of him having no rest for his spirit. And then write down chapter 7, verses 5 through 9, where he says why he has no rest for his spirit. He's, and the reason why is because he's so concerned about how the Corinthians are going to respond to a, a hard letter that he had sent them before. You could also write down Philippians chapter 2, And verse 19, where again Paul expresses his concern. But one one passage I would have you turn to is 1 Thessalonians. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 2. And we're looking at verse 17. And I'm going to read a a whole passage here. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. And I want you to to just see how concerned Paul is about their walk with Christ. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. 
For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, Paul couldn't bear to not know how they were doing. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. You know Paul could endure a lot. He could endure stonings. He could endure shipwrecks. He could endure going hungry. He could endure exposure. What could he not endure? He could not endure not knowing how his beloved spiritual children in Christ were doing. He could not endure that. And when you go to, to 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul gives you that whole list of all his sufferings, there is one thing he adds toward the end of that list. And it's almost like this is the heaviest thing that he's had to endure. You don't have to turn there, but first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 28 after he's given all that list of all that he suffered for the Lord's sake. In verse 28, he says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That was what weighed on Paul the most. That's what caused him the most pain. And what we see in Paul is not just something that an apostle went through. That is what Christian love looks like. It is an intense concern that one is trusting in and following Jesus. Everything else is secondary to that. Yeah, we should be concerned. Oh, my, my brother, he, he, he broke his leg. Uh, he's got financial difficulties. Yeah, we should be concerned about that, but not as much as we should be concerned if he's beginning to uh, lose his faith in Jesus. That should cause us the utmost concern. If he doesn't gather with the brethren anymore, that should give us the utmost concern. The Christian life is one of helping each other to run the race of trusting in Jesus. And it often involves bringing correction. If we see a brother or a sister in Christ straying from Christ and his gospel, we need to love them enough to speak the truth to them in love. We need to be an example of faith to them. We need to seek to correct them in the context of a loving relationship. 
We need to pursue their good rather than our own. We need to be burdened for them, laboring for their souls until they get back to trusting Christ. But it's not enough to be willing to give correction. That is hard. But we also have to be willing to receive correction as well. None of us have arrived to the point to where we don't need correction anymore. When you get to heaven, then you don't need correction anymore. But until then, you do need it. I need it. And I imagine that when you first came to Christ, you looked fondly on those who shared the gospel with you. You loved them for that. Why is it that after coming to know Christ, when someone reminds us of that gospel and reminds us what what God has called us to in living a new life for Christ, why do we then view that person as an enemy when all they're doing is giving us the very same message they gave us that we loved them for? Why do we now hate them for it? Let's not do that. Let's keep loving that one who is reminding us of the gospel and helping us follow Christ. We should love them just as much then as we did when they first gave us the gospel. And maybe they won't say it. Maybe they won't bring correction in exactly the right way they should. But if there's just a smidgen of truth to what they're saying, we should grab onto that, say, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for helping me see that. And maybe you've never humbled yourself and you've never been willing to receive correction. If that's you, most likely you have never truly received the free gift of salvation because the gospel is one big word of correction, isn't it? What does the gospel tell us? It says, you have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You deserve the wrath of God. And you will die and you will go to hell and be there forever because of what you've done unless you humble yourself and you confess your sin to God and you look to the one he sent to save you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him with all your heart. Ask God to apply the blood of Christ to your soul. Ask God to count the righteousness of Christ for you. Ask God to forgive you of all your sins on the basis of what Jesus did. And if you do that, he will save you. Romans 10 verse 13 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You cannot hang on to your pride and receive the gift of salvation at the same time. You have to let go of your pride, receive the correction that the gospel has pronounced upon you, and then grab on to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth, your word. Lord, it is hard for us to humble ourselves and receive correction from others. But Lord, that is the Christian life. Help us to turn from our pride and, and, and be thankful for those that you put in our lives who, who remind us of the gospel and who remind us of, of our need to follow after Jesus. Help us not to, to be fools. Help us not to reject rebuke. Help us to be like David who said, that is like oil on the head, a rebuke from my brother. Make us those kinds of people who love Jesus so much that we love those who bring Jesus to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.